Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Premed Year, session number 347. Hello, and welcome to The Premed Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Premed Years. I am excited to have you on today to hear an amazing story of a student who came from seemingly nothing and now has seemingly everything, or at least everything that you guys want, an acceptance to medical school, and oh, by the way, a full ride. Today, we are talking to a student who's an immigrant to this country, has overcome a ton on his journey, and is now celebrating on his way to medical school. Santiago, welcome to the pre-mid years. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. When did you first realize you wanted to be a physician? I think for me, it it started out, I think, a little like the the cliche pre-med story of, you know, when you were a little kid and you see a show on the TV. And so I remember seeing a medical procedure on the TV. It must have been like trauma in the ER, one of those shows. And they pulled down this lady's, they were doing a surgery on this, on this woman's face and they pulled down, you know, the skin and 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 the subskin and just down to like the bone and the muscle. And I remember the instinctual reaction, not being grossed out, but being really curious about (laughs) everything that was under the skin and being, and not, not being turned away, but wanting to find out more about it. But I think that must've been when I was seven or eight years old. But I think growing up, you also, you know, sometimes you want to be a firefighter. Sometimes you want to be an astronaut, but science specifically was the thing that kind of stuck with me. And it was something that I found out I was good at in school. So I kind of kept pushing on that, pushing on that curiosity. And as I moved through high school, I narrowed it down to more of like a biology. And then as I got into college, I started thinking career-wise. And, you know, medicine is always what stuck with me throughout those years. So for you, for a lot of students who watch those shows and then go through this process... And they're like, ooh, I like science. This is awesome. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. 
for you as an immigrant to this country with English as a second language, for a lot of students who are like that, they go, oh, that, that can't be me because I don't know anybody who's done that before, who's, who speaks my language, who looks like I do. What was that process for you to, to actually realize that you could do this even though you're an immigrant to this country and, and you may have come from a different background than other people? I think that for me was definitely a, a continual process of, of both internal and external being told that I could do this, right? And so by my side, I had you know a really strong support system with my mother who told me I could do anything and my family, my immediate family that believed in me. But along the way, you know, there were external factors that kind of say the opposite. They say that you can't do that. Like I had a career counselor come into my seventh grade class. And, and when I said that I wanted to be a surgeon or a physician, she kind of frowned and was like, oh, that sounds really difficult. Have you thought about a paramedic? So, you know, something that requires less training, something that's a little bit easier to access. And that really discouraged me at that time. And I remember going home and telling my family about it and telling my mother about it. And she was furious. She was <laughs> absolutely furious. And, you know, she said, absolutely not. Like, you can do whatever you want. You know, this is not out of reach for you. And so I think the continual process has been really relying back on those, on that support system that I had with not only my family, but high school teachers and friends in college that really re-emphasized that it was possible, that that you were smart enough kind of thing. Because if not, it really is easy when you don't have those role models. Even on those TV shows, you don't see those role models mm -hmm. that look like you or that have the same background as you. What was it like for you to transition from high school to college? It was rough. It was really, really rough. I. I went to a public high school and they're, they're graded. And this was a D rated high school at the time. Uh, I believe it's gotten better since. And, but really I just kind of cruised through high school. I didn't, I didn't really have to put a lot of time into homework. I didn't really have to put a lot of time into studying for tests. And so when I got to college and especially the, like a very rigorous college, I wasn't prepared for, you know, being among the smartest kids from each high school that they had come from respectively. Mm. And so, so there was a point in my freshman year, in my first year that I was failing two classes. I was failing organic chemistry and I was failing calculus. And I really had to just come to a point where I said, okay, I'm going to fail one of these. I'm going to have to withdraw from the other one. And so I had meetings with the professors. I talked to an academic advisor. And I just, I ended up withdrawing from organic chemistry and focusing all of my attention on that calculus class and bringing up the grade enough for it to be okay. And I ended up retaking organic chemistry later, but that first year was a really tough transition because it seemed like no matter how much I studied, there was no more time to put into study. So I had to switch how I studied. When you were in high school, was it just you were, you were smart and didn't have to work hard or you just didn't care about your grades? I think I wasn't really forced to work in AP classes. You're kind of forced to work a little harder, but when the AP test comes around, but for the most part, there were assignments that you could get done within an hour, you know, maybe a little bit shorter. So I wasn't used to that long-term study, you know, kind of that repetitive studying over time, studying over multiple days or multiple weeks for an exam. 
And so that's what really shifted when I got to college that I realized that, you know, that short time window of studying was never going to be enough. Yeah. When it's always a big transition for students when they go from kind of here, here's your assignment, you're going to turn it in tomorrow or the next day. And then uh, when you do that, I'll give you another assignment to college when it's like, here's the syllabus for the semester. I'll see you at the test. And so there's this like long term, like, oh, I got to just really put in the work to do it. And, and that kind of screws with a lot of students. It sounds like that that's what hit you as well. But for you, what what was it that led to you going, there's something wrong with my studying habits. I need to change the way I study. Because a lot of students don't get to that point until even later on in the process. Yeah, definitely. I think I think it took that that moment where I realized that I wasn't going to be able to salvage both grades. And luckily, you know, the the university that I went to had an academic advising center that I was able to go to and kind of ask for advice. And um, they kind of helped me with the process of talking to the professors and choosing which one to withdraw from and choosing which one to focus all my attention on. Uh, but that was that was a tough, a tough decision. I think especially because in high school, tutoring is kind of something that has a negative stereotype to it. Is like if you need tutoring, you're not smart. Uh, and so I had to come to kind of the realization that like asking for help doesn't mean you're dumb. It doesn't mean you're not smart enough. Asking for help just means you don't have the resources currently or you don't have the techniques or the strategies currently to master whatever you're doing. And I think that ended up helping me in the long run, even throughout work, employment, studying, whatever it may be, of just knowing that when you've reached the limits of what you can do to be able to ask for help for from experts or people that know what they're talking about. And when you started college, were you pre-med at the time? Were you like, okay, this is what I want to do? Or did it take you a while to figure that out? I was, I was fairly pre-med. I, I knew I was going to do the prereqs, and, but I did start out with an intent to major in biology. But as soon as I got into a biology lab, like the lab portion of a biology class, I realized I hated it. I hated the whole process of, you know, pipetting stuff or, <laughs> or waiting four hours for an experiment that might not work and then writing up the lab report of what you could do better next time. I realized that that really wasn't what interests me in science. And I ended up stumbling into global health. And uh, that's where I really found the passion and the passion through the intersection of what interests me academically and kind of what influences my identity as a Latino immigrant in the United States. Talk about global health, public health. How did, how did finding that lead to you going, oh, medicine? Because uh, it seems like a lot of students go down that path and they don't really connect the dots very well, wh whether it's their personal statement or during an interview, to show why medicine, why being a physician versus going and working at, at an NGO and, and doing public health stuff. Yeah, definitely. So I think just it was mostly the conversations that we were having in the global health class, whether it was the ethics class or I took a medical anthropology class uh, later in that global health coursework. And it was really seeing the, the, the role that physicians can play with that background knowledge of global health and public health and with that background knowledge of the culture of the patients that they're working with, that I realized that, you know, I do share, I do have a, a unique background of coming from a Latin American country and having lived this uh, Latino American immigrant life growing up, 
And to be able to use that in the role of a physician, I thought was really powerful and something that I wanted to further pursue. And so that's kind of how I made the connection between global health, staying in global health, but still wanting to do that in the role of a physician. Now, you you said that you struggled with organic chemistry early on. and it, Historically, that's the notorious weed out class for pre-meds, whether or not they can continue on this journey or not, or they want to continue on this journey or not. When you had to withdraw and retake it and and you were struggling early on, was there any doubt whether or not you could continue this process and, and actually get into medical school? Oh, definitely. I mean, there was doubt all the way up until I got into medical school. <laughs> um, and I think, I think something that helped a lot was, was taking the toughest classes during the summer where I could focus on just that class. And so that's what I ended up doing that first year is I retook organic chemistry one in the summer by itself. So no other classes, just that class. Uh, and I did the same with physics too. And that helped, that helped to just not have to juggle four classes, extracurriculars and whatever else, you know, a college student has to do, but really just put aside the time to take that class on its own. And luckily financial aid was able to help with that. So a lot of students, number one, are super scared to take a hard class during the summer because it's a condensed schedule and you have to learn the hard material even faster than if you were to take it during a normal semester or quarter. But also they hear that schools don't want to see you taking prereqs during the summer. How how was it taking organic chemistry and, and physics in a condensed schedule even though you did have kind of the the pure focus on those courses and did it ever come up in the admissions process? So it never came up in admissions. I don't think anything from my grades that I didn't bring up came up in the interviews or the admissions process. I think that taking it in the summer, at least for me, it's also like a very case-by-case learning style. For me, I was just able to kind of cut out all the other distractions because during the school year, I was involved in extracurriculars. I was on a dance team. I, I had, you know, I was involved in a social group. And so I, I really had other extracurriculars that were kind of pulling my time outside of class. And in college, you know, what I had to learn the hard way was that most of the learning that you do comes outside of class, not during lecture. What do you mean by that? Most of the learning comes outside of class, not in lecture. Well, I feel like in lecture, you're, you're, you're kind of taking notes or you're following along with the PowerPoint. But it isn't until you really go back and digest some of that material or go back through the lecture and compare notes or try to make a study guide for the exam. Uh, that, to me, at least, is where the real learning took place. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the lecture, you were kind of being presented the material for the first time. Did you ever feel like maybe you shouldn't go to lecture and just study on your own? Or was that an option at your college? I, it was an option. I think some of them were were recorded. I just... I knew I knew I wouldn't. I think I knew <laughs> I, I knew myself that I wouldn't really put in the time to go back and listen to the lecture, you know, two or three times if I hadn't gone to it the first time. So I needed that initial presentation of the material before being able to go back and kind of be like, okay, I've heard this at least once before. I heard a student ask this question about this um, to kind of prepare me for the studying. Let's talk about the doubt that you had that that you said kind of the whole throughout the whole process before you got your acceptance, what do you think was the biggest source of doubt for you? Um, surprisingly, it was academics, even though it, was, it wasn't it was brought up during the admissions process. I think between academics and shadowing. 
So I had only shadowed one physician and I didn't really know how medical schools were going to look at that or if they were going to look at that as a determining factor. And I also knew that my science GPA, after my postdoc, my science GPA was a 3.1. Before it was a 2.9. So it was kind of right on the border of what you consider ready for medical school. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was kind of my biggest form of doubt that, but I also knew I kind of had, you know, plans. I knew this can be some, this is something that can be improved if it takes, even if it takes another year, another two years, you kind of always have that in the back of your mind of analyzing your application being like, okay, what was my weakest points? If I don't get in, what am I going to fix before I reapply? Let's talk about that journey of of needing to take a post back or or at least figuring out that maybe you should do a post back. How did you get to that conclusion? I think it was it was speaking with a pre-med advisor and she was she was brutally honest and it, it definitely at the time brought me down in that, you know, she kind of looked at my transcript, looked at my grades and said, This will not get you into medical school. And I mean, it wasn't the most encouraging way of going about it, but I think looking back, like she was right, you know, um, I did have some, some grades that I needed to fix. And so I was able to, while I was working the year after undergrad to fix one of the grades. And then I started looking to some of the post programs in the area. And, uh, this one had a really good history of helping medical students and it, it did the job. It really did. And, and so I, I'm a strong believer in in postbacks, it's just the financial toll of postbacks is something that has to be considered too. Was it a, a formal postback that you did or kind of a do it yourself where you just took some extra classes? It was a formal postback program. And so they, they looked at the classes that you had taken that you hadn't done so well on, or maybe science classes that you hadn't taken or hadn't had a chance to take in undergrad. And it was specifically designed for both academic boosters and career changers or people that had not considered pre-med before undergrad or in undergrad. And so it was a formal program. They kind of had it set out. They had a predetermined, you know, number of courses you would take per semester. And it also left ample amount of time outside of that postback to pursue those other things that strengthen your application, like volunteering and shadowing or clinical experience, that kind of thing. Cause it was only three classes. Only three classes that you took at the postback? Per semester. Per okay, semester. per semester. I was like, only three classes. Um, yeah. f- as a formal postback, did they set up some of those things that you should be doing, like clinical experience and shadowing and volunteering, or did you still have to go do all that yourself? They definitely gave you the resources to ask about volunteering, and they gave you some of the places that their students had historically volunteered at. But I worked part-time as an EMT through that, and so that, that was kind of what I used a good chunk of my time outside of the postback for, but I was still shadowing that same physician throughout that postback year. Now, why did you choose to do a formal postback? Because they are more expensive than just going to a community college or even going back to your undergrad institution and taking more classes. I think this postback was, I don't know if it's unique, but they accepted FAFSA. And so I knew I could get at least part of the cost done through financial aid. Um, and the rest of it, I could take out through a loan, a plus loan or a parent loan. Um, and so those two factors, I think looking at, even though it was going to be a really high initial cost, seeing that it's something that I could kind of bulk with my really low undergrad loans, encouraged me to pick this one out of others. 
Let's talk about the MCAT. You're uh, an immigrant to this country, uh, English as a second language. How was the MCAT for you? Because typically, you are the the stereotypical student that the MCAT likes to destroy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and I I do not enjoy standardized tests, and historically have struggled with standardized tests, mm-hmm. and so. I think I'm also lucky enough, though, that I did come to the United States when I was four years old. And so I have spent the large majority of my life in the United States. So that language barrier has kind of disappeared, at least for me. I do have, you know, my parents still struggle with it and I have family that struggles with it. But I definitely consider English. I consider to be as strong in English as I am in Spanish. So I didn't run into that too much. I think what I ran into more was not having the guidance of someone that had been through there before, right? So not having a family member or a friend who had gone on to medical school before me. Mm-hmm. And what what was that process like to to find a mentor to, to to get that guidance since nobody in your family could help you? I think the biggest help was people that had gone on straight from undergrad or one year out from undergrad onto med school because I took three years. I took three years off. And so I, I did have a couple of friends that were either in their first or second year of medical school that I was able to use as a resource and have them kind of look over the essays, look over the applications. And I mean, that was a huge help, massive, massive help to have them. Why did you take so much time between undergrad and applying? I think I was, I was just fixing certain things. I mean, straight out of undergrad, I, I needed a job. And so I worked in for the cancer institute of the college that I went to and and worked on some global health research of smoking cessation of pregnant women which was which was really neat and then during that time I got EMT trained and so I wanted to use that EMT license and so I got a job doing non-emergency medical transport and then that second year I did the postback and so I knew I wouldn't be able to take the MCAT until after the postback and so that kind of put me in the cycle of the third year out from undergrad. Now, a lot of students listening to this might hear what you're doing and then they might, they might say, well, I've heard students doing something similar. And then they kind of get yelled at by an admissions committee because it sounds like you're just checking boxes. What, what do you think when, when you hear that? Uh, that's actually something I was really, really active about is not, not doing things just to check boxes. I think in during in college, I saw that you know some pre med students would join a biology lab, right? But it, it had to do with plants or something, right? <laughs> and so they were they were getting that biology lab experience or that research experience, but it was in something completely irrelevant to medicine, or maybe not completely irrelevant, but just pretty removed from from medicine. And so I was pretty I was pretty um, active in thinking about the things that I wanted to do that directly related to medicine and to global health that I wanted to do in my career. And so for me, what, what has always kind of motivated me in the pursuit of medicine is learning skills. And so the first time I learned CPR was amazing. You know, I was like, this is something that can be used to keep somebody alive until help gets there. And so I kind of pursued that or tugged on that to then get EMT training and learn more skills. And then, you know, I got phlebotomy trained and worked as a phlebotomist. And now I'm working in the emergency department a level one trauma center and, you know, have just picked up skills along the way that I know will be useful in my career as a physician. So I think I've chosen activities that I can talk about, 
talk and write about passionately because I think if you have something and you write it down on your application and you can't talk about it, then it's it's worthless, at least to me. Yeah, I I agree. As a Latino American going through this process, what do you think is have been the biggest hurdles for you? I think one of the biggest hurdles is not having a clear path. Um, and that's that's not limited to Latino immigrants. That's limited to a lot of low socio socioeconomic status applicants that maybe don't have family members going on to college. Um, I think you just also see things through a different lens. I think working in a clinical environment, you see maybe a, a different way that Latino patients are treated or the language barrier that exists in the healthcare field, the language barrier that exists between patient and physician and how the need of a translator can really slow down medical care. I think that has been one of the most eye-opening things. And one of the things that keeps pushing me forward is, is I know that if there was a physician that was fluent in Spanish, that patient would feel so much more comfortable. That patient would get their medical information so much quicker than having to wait for the translator to come. When you were applying to medical schools with needing to do a post back, how did you kind of figure out what schools you should apply to with having just over a 3.0 science GPA? I think my medical school choice was limited more by geography than it was what I thought about the medical school. I mean, I had I had come from a pretty high ranking university. And so I knew I knew that I could do I could kind of overcome whatever challenge of of if I could get in front of someone. That was always kind of my goal. I was like if I can get in front of someone in an interview, I could explain, you know, why I would be a good candidate. And so the re- the way that I chose medical schools was what's around me, what's what what can I drive to um if I can't find a cheap flight there. That was that was more what limited my medical schools than than thinking about what they would think about my grades. Why did you limit yourself based on geography? Uh, it just it's expensive. It adds up really really quickly. I think just in secondaries, you know, even though you, though you do have some financial aid assistance, even though most schools offer a waiver, there's some that don't. And those thirty, forty, fifty dollars of each school can add up really quickly. And then just the financial cost of traveling to interviews was, is, is very expensive if you consider flying. And so, you know, there was, there was days where there was interviews where I had to drive, you know, either the night before or at midnight or one in the morning to, to get there in time for the interview. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have family or friends in the area, but I met this really, really smart, really, really talented African-American student from California who at that point had already been accepted to eight medical schools. And he had to sleep in his rental car the night before an interview because he wasn't able to secure housing with a current student. What do you think about that whole process being so expensive? It seems to disproportionately disadvantage those of lower socioeconomic status, which seems like a lot of, a lot of things in our society does. I mean, it's, it was extremely frustrating throughout the process. I think I think it starts way back in pre-med. I think it starts way back in undergrad of just, if you have family members who are physicians, it's so much easier to shadow. It's so much easier to 
for them to find you a little research assistant position somewhere. Um, and I think that's so much harder when you don't have those family members. I also think there's like, if you're financially dependent on your parents or, you know, you can kind of lean on your parents, then you kind of have more free time to volunteer. You have more free time to shadow. But for applicants that are working to pay rent, then they're kind of limited in the free time that they have, especially if they take a post bag, especially if they're non-traditional. If you could wave a magic wand and fix this process to help other students like yourself, other students like the African-American student you were talking about, what would you recommend be done? Yeah, I would say that, you know, I, I imagine you know this way better than I do going to so many conferences with admissions committees, but I would really just love to have a conversation with them that if they're genuinely serious about increasing representation from racial, ethnic, and financial minorities, then they need to increase the amount of travel aid for applicants from these backgrounds. Talk about travel aid. Is that something that that came up when you were applying and um, being offered interviews? Were schools like, "Hey, if you need some help, let us know. We'll we'll pay for your tickets." What was what did travel aid look like? So I didn't run into that in my experience. I'm sure there was someone I could have emailed to look further for travel aid. I think the most help I got was just, and the most help that students get, most students get is staying with a current student so that they don't have to pay for housing. But all the flights I had to pay myself, you know, all the gas money I had to pay myself, there wasn't really that travel aid, but there definitely needs to be. Yeah. Oh, that's a, it's a difficult one because there's, I could see kind of how, how admissions committees will go, well, if we give you money, then, then we're advantaging you in this process and disadvantaging others. Um, what do what do you think about that? I think it's just, it's not a level playing field right now. And so I don't yeah. think, I don't think you can treat it as a level playing field in that if you help those that have never gotten to this point, then you're, then you're forced to help those which it's so easy for them to get there. Yeah. Um, and so I think until you can consider a level playing field, I don't think that argument holds much merit. Did you apply for the fee assistance program? Yep, I applied for a fee assistance program and that was, that was a good help for the MCAT. I mean, even though the reduced cost is still over $150 for the MCAT. Uh, and that's, that's how I got a lot of the fee waivers for the secondaries. And so that was that was that was really helpful. The MCAT bundle that they include through the AAMC was really helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really had to, you know, something I focused really hard on is is using exclusively free and reduced cost options to study for the MCAT. So what did you use? So I used podcast. I used I had a I had a about twenty minute drive to my postback, and so it was kind of the perfect amount of time to listen to you know, med school podcasts or pre-med years, things like that, Khan Academy. And then I used the sample materials from every test prep company, the things they offer for free before you have to pay. I used the website that kind of gives you a, a syllabus of what will be on the MCAT. It was just mcatselfprep.com and Quizlet. I used that. And then for reduced costs, yeah, I just really focused on everything the fee assistance program brings, and then buying that bundle with the four full-length AAMC exams mm -hmm. was probably the most helpful thing that I used. And self-prepping in that way, how long did you study? 
I, I, I had a few different starts to studying. <laughs> I think, I think six months out, I knew that I should start. And so I tried to do it in my free time and that didn't work. And so three months out, I kind of knew that it was getting close. And so I started designating three hours a day, kind of like a class. I treated it like a class, just like I would go to one of my post-bac classes. I said, this is the time for the MCAT class. And I designated that time as studying for the MCAT. And then as soon as my post-bac was over, I had just under a month until the test date. And I completely shut myself off from the world. I stopped working. I stopped going outside much. And I started studying 10 to 14 hours a day. And it was miserable. And I really do not recommend that to anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a rough month. Uh, right before the test, you start to you start to burn out very quickly when you do that. Yeah, I, I was just not a happy person <laughs> during that month. But it worked for you. Did you take the MCAT just once? I did. Yeah, I took the MCAT just once. Um, but I think the best part about it is that I knew where I stood really like just before the, the test day, because I do think that AAMC's full length exams are really accurate and really close to what the real MCAT is. I mean, I ended up scoring a point from what I scored on my last full length practice exam. Yeah. Um, so I, I had the idea of where I was in the ballpark. I just kind of had to overcome test day nerves, but yeah, that's why I started that whole I started to really tell the next cohort of the postback to study as early as possible. And I tried to design a, a long-term test prep program for them. What was the hardest part of the admissions process for you? The hardest part of the admissions process was picking up the secondaries right after taking the MCAT. Uh, there was, for me, there was a significant gap there because you know I feel so drained after the MCAT. And then I went home and kind of relaxed. I was home with family and didn't pre-write the secondaries as much as I should have. And the last secondary I turned in wasn't until late September. Mm. And so I really do feel like that hurt me on my admission cycle. Did you get an interview from that school? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. It's, it's hard. It, it seems so early in the process, even considering the primary application deadline hasn't passed yet for most schools at that point. So um, it's it's one of my kind of big pushes for students to understand the whole rolling admissions process and to, to, to pre-write those secondaries and to turn in your application as soon as possible and to take the MCAT earlier than a lot of students take it just so everything is in and done and ready to go uh, to to make sure your application is is ready to be reviewed. So when it comes to the the interview process, how did you prepare for your med school interviews? Um so that that website that we don't talk about much or that stresses out <laughs> a lot of medical students or pre-medical students is actually really helpful for interview questions because it's people that went to these interviews and posted what interview questions they were actually asked. So that was that was a huge help. And I did end up buying your book of how to prep for the interview. And that was that was really good for case studies of kind of seeing how the applicants that you talked to messed up originally mm -hmm. and then how you kind of coach them through how to fix how to still tell the same story, whether it was in a more condensed way or more elaborate way or more creative way. Yeah. Uh, really seeing those those real life examples was really helpful. And so I had 
kind of a, a little booklet of, of notes on that and how to really apply it to my own story. What was the hardest question you got? The hardest question I got, actually, I had prepared for it. It was, it was what would you do if you couldn't be a doctor, right? I think that's, that's a pretty classic one that comes yeah. up. And that's kind of the one that's coming to mind right now. I'm sure there might've been a harder one, but uh, for that one, I kind of, I, I had prepared for it. It had come up in, you know, tough interview questions in several resources and I felt prepared for it. What would you do? I, I would go into global health, like full, yeah. full steam. I would make sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would pursue, probably get, probably pursue my paramedics. You get more clinical skills and, and apply that internationally. Like, yeah, I would still do kind of the same role of providing medical care internationally in a global health aspect, just not as a physician. Yeah. Awesome. So you were successful in the application and admissions game, and you actually got uh, at least one scholarship to medical school, if not more, if I'm not mistaken. What was that process like to, to be awarded scholarship money to go to medical school? It was a huge blessing, I think. And one of the ways that I did is, is the schools that I had earned an acceptance to or that were considering me for acceptance I really took advantage of their financial aid section of where you can kind of explain your financial situation. And so what I explained to them was that, you know, even though FAFSA and the CSS profile that some schools ask for, it asks for financial information from both parents. And so what I was able to tell them is that, you know, I hadn't been financially dependent on my parents. I left for college. And so I didn't feel like it was fair to have their financial information on my FAFSA and my CSS. And I really made the case that if it wasn't for scholarships, I wouldn't be able to take the load of loans during medical school. Yeah. What's next for you? Next for me is, is vacation. This going on vacation before, before starting medical school, I'm getting housing set up in the city where I'm going to live. And I'll be pursuing a MD-MPH at one of the best public health schools in the country. And so completely ecstatic about that. Um, but I do plan to remain engaged in immigrant health. That's what I wrote my undergraduate thesis on is, is immigrant families and immigrant health. And that's something that I plan on continuing to do research in. Um, but other than that, is really trying to get a hold of medical school. I mean, thankfully, it's pass fail at the school that I'm going to. So I feel like that takes a little bit of pressure off. Definitely does. When you are talking to pre-meds, whether they're uh, others from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or other immigrants, what is the, the biggest piece of advice that you have for them? Uh, the biggest piece of advice I had for them is to just realize that the cards are stacked against them. And that means that they have to prepare earlier and they have to prepare harder than most other applicants. And the only way you can do that is through knowledge. And so as, as early as you are in your pre-med or your application cycle is just be aware of what that process might look like. Reach out to people that have gone through it. Try to get connected with a community of, of people or students that have gone through that process and you know really just start studying as soon as you can. I think if I would have known what I do now as a freshman in college, I could have very casually reviewed what was going to be on the MCAT as I was taking my prereq classes. 
and been prepared for the MCAT by senior year of college. What last words of wisdom do you have for a student listening to this who is is later on in their journey and they're struggling? Maybe they withdrew from organic chemistry like you did and have to retake it and uh, debating whether or not they need to do a post-bac or some sort of master's program uh, and wondering if this is still the right path for them. I think uh, be be realistic when you look at your application. You know all the hard work that you've put into it. You know all the hard obstacles that you've had to overcome to get to the point that you're at and and work on the weakest areas of your application, even as you're applying, before you're applying, or where when you're reapplying. Really take a take a good look at what you can improve, what they might have focused on. And if if you did get rejected by schools, really follow up with them because most of them are willing to tell you how they looked at your application or what they might have seen that might have discouraged them from offering you a seat in their class. And last question here, for a student to be able to find a mentor in this process, was that something that you did? And it, if you did, or maybe if you don't, if, if you didn't, what uh, recommendations would you have for somebody to seek out a mentor? That's that's probably one of the regrets I have from undergrad is that I didn't have a mentor that was looking at the field that I was looking to go into. I didn't have, you know, a, a physician or even a medical student that had gone through the process before. And I think that's one of the ways to really get that information early and get that information straight from someone that's successfully gone through the process. I think one of the ways to do that can be through cultural groups. So if you're a Latino immigrant, you know, being a part of the Latino group on campus or asking if the medical school has a Latino group like LMSA or AMA. Um, and yeah, just seeking out, it's going to be tough. It's going to be a little tougher to seek out that, that mentorship and that resource, but don't be scared to ask for help. It doesn't mean you're worth any less. It just means you don't have the resources currently to get to where you need to be. And, and that information is available if you just ask. All right, there you have it. Thank you, Santiago, for coming on and sharing your amazing story, hopefully giving some motivation, some encouragement to others out there on a similar journey. I encourage you to continue to listen to this podcast for more encouragement, not only for hearing stories like Santiago's, but also like last week when we had Christian Esmond on talking about what it's like to be a director of admissions and what they're looking for and the whole kind of admissions process and much more. I would love for you, because we have what I think are so many amazing guests sharing their stories, sharing their knowledge, I would love for you to share this podcast with your advisor, with your classmates, with your pre-med clubs, with whoever will listen. Send out an email, post it on social media, tag me, I'm at Medical School HQ, so that I can see you sharing the love all over the place. That is what I request of you today. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time where we have an interesting discussion all about shadowing, right? The ultimate guide to shadowing is our podcast next week here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.